Mother's Day first. I'm just, uh, this is a unique Mother's Day, right? But um, nonetheless, happy Mother's Day. May God just meet you where you're at. I'm so grateful to be here in this building and yeah. in this space. Um, I haven't been for a, a minute, um, but I'm grateful. I know that when um, when Eric asked me to to share, to consider sharing for, for Mother's Day, um, I had already been doing a little bit of studying, and so I kind of knew right away what I would love to share. And then, in part of that, I said, and I want us to hear from other ladies as well. And so God brought to mind two specific women to to come and to share with us this morning. Um, Around Easter time, there was a a quote that was kind of circulating that was uh, um, really, really intriguing because it caused me to search the scriptures and study myself, but it said, so often... Um, we see men going to the mountain and able to meet with God. How come that we don't see women doing that? And um, the reality is, many times, us as women, we, we can't abandon babies and children and homes and meals. And, and yet, in the scriptures, we get, we get to often see a beautiful picture of God coming and meeting women where they're at. In the midst of the ordinary, mundane of life, God comes and meets them to remind them that he sees them and that he is going to grace them, and he wants women to give themselves grace and to live in that and, um, and to meet them and to, to remind them of who he is and then to live out of that. And so mm-hmm. I started doing my own study, like, man, where did God meet women in Scripture? Where did he show up and meet them in the middle of what they were going through? And so um, that's what we're going to bring to you this morning, three different instances where um, Jesus meets us in the ordinary of life. Jesus meets us in our work, Jesus meets us in our worship, and Jesus meets us in our want. And those are just three pictures of Jesus being so intentional with us as women. So we are excited to share that with you this morning. We pray that it would just be an amazing start to your Mother's Day and just bless you. So Absolutely. I want to pray here uh, for Erica, for Cynthia, for Debbie as they get ready to share. So would you all bow your heads with me wherever you're at, and let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful, Lord for your word that endures forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God, this word will not. And so we are thankful that even on days like these that are mixed with joys and sorrows, that your word still can penetrate our hearts to bring celebration, joy, and healing, God. Uh, God, we ask that you would speak through these sisters as they unpack your word, they bring an exhortation for us, God. And I pray that we would be uh, challenged, refreshed, encouraged, and God moved to draw closer to you through this. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms, and happy Mother's Day to my own mom. Um, today we celebrate moms, but in a lot of ways we just celebrate women. There are many women who are not moms, yet they nurture and care for others in ways that only women can. It is an honor to stand before you today as the proud mother of four children of my own, yet today I'm even more excited to honor a woman in scripture who may or may not have been a mom, we don't know, but she was an extraordinary woman who followed Christ. Mary is one of my favorite women in the Bible because she was this broken, sinful woman. Scripture tells us that Jesus cast seven demons out of her in uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 2. She was forgiven many sins, and because of this, she was deeply grateful and had this unique ability to posture her heart in ways that were beautiful and unashamed in worship. 
Mary's work was defined by her love for Jesus. We know that Mary was a devoted worshiper, a disciple of Jesus, though she was not one of the 12, um, still a disciple. She was a consistent and reliable worker for the gospel. As we follow Mary throughout scripture, we, can, we see an interesting portrait of a woman who has experienced the scourge of sin and the miraculous power of redemption. In John 20, verse 1, we see the following. We see that the morning of Jesus' resurrection, following his crucifixion, Mary arrives early in the morning on the third day to find that the stone at the entrance of the tomb has been removed. She goes running to Peter and to the disciples. Um, she tells them that Jesus' body is missing, and of course they come running, and they go into the tomb. They do a little investigating, see the linens are where Jesus' body was. They eventually return home. And so this is where I invite you, church, just to pick up your Bibles and um, turn with me to John chapter 20. We're going to pick it up at verse 11. We're going to go to verse 18, and I'll be reading from the Passion Translation. <clears throat> In verse 11, the word of God says, Mary arrived back at the tomb, broken and sobbing. She stooped to peer inside, and through her tears, she saw two angels in dazzling white robes, sitting where Jesus' body had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. Dear woman, why are you crying, they asked. Mary answered, they have taken away my Lord, and I, I don't know where they've laid him. Then she turned around to leave, and there was Jesus standing in front of her, but she didn't realize that it was him. He said to her, Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Mary answered, thinking he was only the gardener. Sir, if you have taken his body somewhere else, tell me please and I will go and... Mary, he interrupted her. Turning to face him, she said, Rabboni, which is Aramaic for teacher, for my teacher. Jesus cautioned her, Mary, don't hold on to me now, for I haven't yet ascended to God my father. And he's not only my father and God, but now he's your father and your God. And now go to my brothers and tell them what I've told you, that I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Then Mary Magdalene left to inform the disciples of her encounter with Jesus. I have seen the Lord, she told them, and she gave them his message. We see Mary serve Jesus faithfully throughout scripture in many ways. To the extent of financing Jesus' earthly ministry, along with other women. And this morning, it was no different. Mary had a job to do, a dirty job. But little does Mary know that she was getting ready to encounter Jesus in her work. And Jesus encounters us first in our preparations. Like many of us women, Mary started her day while it was still dark. The text indicates in that the day before was the Sabbath, a day of rest and worship unto, the Jewish, unto God for the Jewish people. The following day, Sunday, would have been considered the first day of work. Would have been considered the first day of the week. And I can just imagine Mary restless, having to wait a whole day to care and tend to Jesus' body. By Sunday morning, I'm sure Mary was anxious to get re and ready to get to work. And what was Mary's work on this morning? We know from scripture that Mary went to the tomb with the sole purpose of washing and anointing Jesus' body, 
According to Mark 16.1, Mary and Salome had purchased aromatic embalming spices so that they might wash and anoint Jesus' body. So Mary was getting ready to busy herself with the preparations. As modern-day women, we can totally relate. We oversee the daily operations of our homes, the complexities of work-life balance, and our most recent reality, being confined to our homes. We are in nonstop preparation of meals, laundry, chores, snacks, school, work, repeat. Our work never seems to end. We see that Mary was no different. Yet make no mistake, in all her preparations, she was hurting. She was grieving. She was in deep grief over the loss of her teacher and her master, Jesus. And like Mary, Jesus encounters us in our expectations. In many ways, Jesus confounded Mary's expectations. You see, she was there on the Friday evening when Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. She, she, was, she witnessed his body being laid in the tomb by Joseph of, of Arimathea. She saw the stone being rolled in place to secure the tomb. When she returned on Sunday morning, she expected to find Jesus where she left him. When she returned, she did not expect to find two angels in white seated where Jesus had been. She did not expect to have her work interrupted by the overwhelming emotional response evoked by the absence of Jesus' body. In verse 13, the angels ask her, Dear woman, why are you crying? Mary was so distraught and overwhelmed, she didn't realize she was talking to angels. She was so emotional that she didn't even recognize that the very Jesus whose body she was looking for was behind her the whole time. As women, we are really good at a lot of things. We can multitask. We can communicate well. Husbands, I said we could communicate well. We nurture and grow things. And we are very attentive to details. On the other hand, and, and, and we can stifle our emotions and get the job done. We can set ourselves to autopilot and plow through the tough stuff. We know how to roll up our sleeves and get to work no matter how gross or how big the mess. And I know many of my superhero single moms can relate. Yet on the other hand, sometimes when faced with environmental stressors and triggers, we struggle to keep our emotions in check. We're often blinded by our emotions, and we struggle to discern truth and prioritize God's will over our own. You see, grief is natural. It's a part of life. For example, we may feel the grief and disappointment at the cancellations and closing of many of our beloved and highly anticipated sports seasons, events, gatherings, vacations. I, I personally had to cancel our vacation. Even the announcement the schools were going to close. Ugh. We, we might feel cheated in many ways out of birthdays, graduations, proms, baby showers. Worse still, we might feel the weight of this pandemic all around us, claiming the lives of family, friends, and neighbors. We can grieve these things. It's okay to feel loss and disappointment at many levels. However, we must not attach ourselves to it. In verse 16, Jesus only had to speak Mary's name, and in an instant, she became aware of his proximity. You see, he was there 
in the tomb with her. When Mary saw Jesus, her instinct was to hug him. Like many of us in quarantine, when we see our family and friends on the front porch, it's awkward not to hug the ones that we love. Yet we see that Jesus actually tells her not to gush. (laughs) In a lot of ways, he tells her to contain her urge to cling to him because things were different. His work was completed and things had changed. We read in verse 17, Jesus cautions her, Mary, don't hold on to me, for I haven't yet ascended to my God and Father. He's not only my Father and God, and now, but now he's your Father and your God. Now go to my brothers and tell them what I've told you, that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to, to my God and your God. Jesus wants that truth to sober us to the reality that we cannot remain in grief and disappointment because of the way things are. Jesus wanted Mary to open her eyes to see that things were not as they seemed and give her a new perspective and a new focus. Jesus gave Mary new work, purpose, and an assignment. He commissioned Mary for the dangerous task of going to the disciples who were in hiding, scared and confused, and tell them that Jesus had resurrected to fulfill all that had been spoken by the law and the prophets. He points out that her reality had changed. Her status had changed. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection paved a new path for Mary, for you and for me. Jesus' sacrifice points to reconciliation, and Jesus now directs her to her father, a relationship finally made right. She quickly sees that there's nothing to be sad about, nothing to cry about. And it was good that Jesus went to the cross, and even better that he was now ascending to the right hand of the Father. Mary's response to Jesus is to obey. And I can just share a personal uh, example and testimony of Jesus encountering me in my work. I know many uh, days and maybe even weeks ago, we were in a citywide fast as a church, and many churches were doing this fast. And I had chosen to fast maybe a Thursday or Wednesday and I just remember wanting that time alone with the Lord to just fast and pray. But, of course, it was time to get dinner ready. And I wasn't able to have that mountaintop experience that I wanted. I remember starting begrudgingly on my chores and starting in, on dinner. I was peeling potatoes. And I remember previously trying to pray, and it just didn't feel like anything was happening. felt like my words are falling to the ground. And as I just began to peel, mashed pota- peel potatoes and mashed potatoes, I just felt the overwhelming presence of the Lord. I knew that Jesus was standing in my kitchen, and he began to burden me to pray and intercede for the lost, not just for the lost in my family, but for the lost lost friends and family that I haven't thought about in years. And as I was praying and interceding, I was crying because his presence was so overwhelming. And I was saying, thank you, Lord, that you understood that I needed to start on dinner, yet that was not going to keep him from encountering me in my work. So let us follow the example of Mary, who loved Jesus so much that she obeyed him when, she, when he said, do not weep and mourn, but go and tell. Let us go and tell our brothers and sisters that though we may be hidden for a time, we are not to despair. Like Mary, we may miss the literal body of Christ. I know I do. 
but we can take comfort in the knowledge that he is with us, he is in us, and we are his body. Let us not succumb to melancholy and grief, but open our eyes to see that Jesus has commissioned us to be workers in his vineyard. Our work is dangerous and risky, but Jesus is our reward. When we encounter Jesus in our work, our mission changes. Thank you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that you encounter us in our work. As women, Lord, sometimes we feel guilt and shame, Lord, that we're not able to climb that mountain, Lord. We're not able to have three hours alone to ourselves to pray and let alone do anything else. But you are a God who dwells with your people. You will not be held back by the tomb. You will not be held back by our, our walls, God, and you will not be held back by anything else. Lord, you encounter us in our work. Lord, when we look up, Lord, we see your face shining down, approving, saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. And Lord, we know that you are lifting shame and guilt even right now, Father God, for what has transpired over the last few weeks and days, Lord God, then you are showing us that you are right there in the tomb with us. That even when the walls feel like they're closing in on us, Jesus, you are with us, God. And I'm grateful that you are Emmanuel, God, that you are God with us. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray for every single woman, man, and child, Lord, that we would follow the example of Mary, Lord, and that we would be faithful servants and workers of the gospel, even when we feel guilt, even when we feel grief, and, Lord, even when we're distracted with our preparations, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. It's so nice to talk to you. I was going to say it's so nice to be with you. Um, congratulations to the mothers, especially because in the last couple of weeks, your job description has intensified to the 10th power. So I just want to uh, encourage and congratulate the mothers this morning. The woman that I am going to speak about for a few minutes is Anna, the prophetess, who met Jesus in the temple. This story comes from Luke 2, 36 to 38. It's a very short passage. I'm going to read the first two verses. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. I'm not going to read the next, uh, that's going to be a, a spoiler. I'll save the verse 38 when we get to that spot. Uh, <clears throat> let's just see a little tiny bit about her. She was a prophet or a prophetess. Um, there were other prophets in, in, in the Bible, women that were prophets like Miriam, the sister of Moses, um, Deborah, my namesake in the time of the judges, Huldah, in the time of the kings, and people would say, speak to God or inquire of God about us because the prophet's job is to communicate God's word to people. Now, very often we, th we think of prophets of telling the future, but they just can also foretell. They can just tell us. They don't have to tell the future, and most of their prophecy are things of warnings, encouragements, comfort, reminding, now, it's interesting, at this time in Jewish history, there had been a 400-year of silence. This is between the Old and the New Testament. And God had not spoken 
any new words to the prophet. So here's a prophetess with no new word from God. But what did she do? <clears throat> she, I assume, went back and read the words that God had been giving through the ages, the words of Jeremiah and of Isaiah and of Daniel, noticing that the time of the Messiah was close because Daniel has all his calculations in there. And so she was still prophesying, even though there wasn't a new word for the Lord. She was faithful. She was advanced in age. Uh, the Bible mentions the, the number 84. But it could also possibly translate in the text that to mean that she lived 84 years after her husband died. That would put her at about 104 if she had married at age 13. Either way, she's advanced in age. She's been there for a long time. And she was a widow. Uh, she'd only been married seven years before she became a widow, so she was a very young widow. She's probably in her 20s. And very likely others would have encouraged her to go ahead and marry again and have children, but because life uh, of a widow was difficult, but she chose to stay single. And this is what she did in her widowhood and her singleness. She went to the temple, and she never left the temple, but worshipped some... Um, uh, manuscripts say that she served and she worshipped night and day fasting and praying now I'm uh, as we when I'm imagining that some people are thinking oh that poor woman in that empty church standing in the empty sanctuary or one of those classrooms in the basement praying all by herself but no she was in the temple in Jerusalem this was the only temple in the whole city this was the only temple in the whole country this was the temple, and it was busy. It was a big space. It was 120 by 60 feet, and the, if you count all the outer, outer courts, it was 1,600 times 900 feet, probably eight times the size of Bell Park across there. So this was a big place, and there was daily activity. There were daily sacrifices, morning and evening. There were daily prayers. The Levites sang the Psalms. Wouldn't that have been fun to hear? So she was it at the temple. We also hear that, now I'm going to read verse 38. It starts at that very moment, so I need to give some background. Mary and Joseph had arrived at the temple with the baby Jesus in accordance to the Old Testament law, and they needed to bring their offering of purification, and they were dedicating the baby. Um, at that very moment, when the baby was coming in, Simeon, a devout and righteous man, was there, and he praised God, and he prophesied over the child and gave a prophecy to Mary, and Anna walks in. Uh, and it says she praised God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. We have to use our imagination. This is a short story. She saw the child. She praised God. And she spoke to all those who were um, looking for the redemption of Israel, waiting for the redemption of Israel. Um, Anna is amongst the very first to encounter Jesus. These are three women that encountered her. He's only six weeks old, and she was one of the first ones. The shepherds had seen him. The wise men hadn't even seen him yet. They're still on the way following the star. They're 500 miles away coming through the desert. And she, was one, and she had that honor, her faithfulness in the, te in the temple. So I want to just make an application here and say a couple of lessons that we can learn from Anna.
And uh, the first thing, the first one, and if I run out of time, this is maybe the only one. This is, the, this is I really think, is a, a lesson from Anna that's most important. Handling her grief in hard times, she did not get bitter. You know, I'm getting advanced in age, and I talk to a lot of people. A lot of us look back, <clears throat> and sadly, some people talk about the things that went wrong or the things, the old hurts that never got resolved. She never got bitter. Sorrow, hard times, they can harden your heart. And especially if we get into self-pity. And we begin to envy what seems like the happier life of others. Becoming a widow at a young age was a difficult thing. I'm sure it was a big disappointment to her. But she chose to move on and stay close to God. Her disappointment became God's appointment. That great disappointment sent her to the temple. There's a verse in Second Corinthians 1.4, and it says, Praise to the... Blessed be the, na- the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who comforts us in our affliction so we will be able to comfort others in affliction with the same comfort which we are comforted by God. And so she allowed herself to be comforted for God in her affliction and as she served in the temple, what a servant she was. If people came with prayer requests and they were sad, she knew that, she'd been there. And she had been comforted for God. She knew how to comfort others. God uses those in a special way who've been through difficult times. And they're more compassionate. Nobody wants an arrogant prayer partner or an arrogant teacher. They want a compassionate person who's been there. I can't help but contrast that, her story, with the story of Naomi in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Naomi and her sons had gone to Moab, and, on re- and there, while she was there, her husband died, so she was a widow, and her two sons died. So she was distressed. When she came back to Bethlehem, she said to her friends, don't call me Naomi anymore, pleasant, but call me Mara, bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. What a sad statement. But she spoke too soon. She spoke too soon. That was God's interruption. That was her disappointment that came and pointed to God's appointment because a little later Ruth meets Boaz Boaz has baby Obed Obed means worshiping and then her friends say to her blessed is the Lord that did not leave you without a redeemer so that was One thing we can learn from Alan, our disappointments, let's seek God in his comfort and not go to bitterness. She prayed and fasted. Here's another one to think about. What did she pray for every day for over 50 years? That was a lot of praying. But when you think of it, of course she worshiped God and she was looking for the Messiah. Perhaps she was praying for the people's hearts to be ready for the Messiah when he came. Perhaps she was praying for the one that was going to be chosen to be the mother of the Messiah that she would have the courage and the strength when she received that news. Isn't that interesting if she had prayed that and then she saw Mary and she said, hey, I was praying for you. I didn't know who you were. She prayed for the people that traveled all over Israel to come. 
You know how far away they were coming? Nazareth is 65 miles away. Three days journey. Galilee, 70 miles away. Some people had special burdens, like Hannah in the Old Testament, who prayed for a son. I imagine she prayed alongside of those women for their prayer requests, maybe for prodigal sons, for estranged relationships, for wisdom and patience to live under the Roman rule. She prayed, and in all those years, I wonder if people came back the next year at Passover, where's Mama Anna? I want to tell her that those prayers have been answered. She did not grow weary in well-doing. I want to call this a long obedience in the same direction. She didn't say, I'm 85 years old now. I've had enough of this. Wouldn't that have been sad if she had retired at 80? Then she would have missed that encounter with Jesus. Her long-term faithfulness was rewarded by that encounter that she had with Jesus. She waited patiently and productively. Right now we're all learning about waiting. We are learning lots of lessons during this coronavirus time. Many of us who like to plan and make goals and make lists and execute plans, waiting is very hard. It's making us anxious. Uh, we want to know when the quarantine is going to be over. We want to know what life is going to be like. We want to know when things will get better. We need to focus on waiting on the Lord. He will instruct us and teach us. We're not waiting on different political people to tell us what to do. We're waiting on the Lord. He will instruct us and teach us. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. But we're also waiting not only for the corona to get better, but we're waiting for something glorious and wonderful. We're waiting for the redemption. Anna was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We are waiting for the Lord's redemption still. We are waiting for the glorious appearing, his second coming. When Jesus went up into heaven in Acts 1.11, we see that the angel said, this same Jesus ascended into heaven will return. That's what we're waiting for. Um, And Jesus himself said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will return and receive you to myself. That where I am, you can be also. That's what we're waiting for. In the last book of the Bible, in the last chapter, Revelation 22:12, it says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. So we need to learn to wait patiently and productively, because while she waited, she was worshiping and praying. And she spoke of him. She began to glorify God. I don't think it was hard for her to speak of him. I don't think she had to think, mm-hmm, let's see, what am I going to say? She had been waiting for him. She had been praying. She had been telling people, the Messiah is coming. I think she said, he's here. I have seen the Messiah. Just like in Cynthia uh, mentioning that Mary Magdalene said, I have seen the Lord. When she, met, when she went to the I have seen the Lord. I have seen the, disciple, the Messiah. Let me just close this out in a little bit of prayer um, and ask the Lord to help us to wait patiently, to have long-term obedience in the right direction, to go to him for comfort when we need Join me in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our disappointments as opportunities and God appointments. Lord, teach us to pray and to be faithful in prayer. Help us not to grow weary in well-doing, 
Teach us to wait patiently for you and give us opportunities to speak about you and your soon return. Amen. Isn't it so good to hear from other women? I am so grateful for Cynthia and Debbie just bringing a word of encouragement. It is so good to highlight women in scripture because God loves women. He loves to use their voice as well. And um, I love that reminder. God is so good to meet us where we're at in our work and in our grief, in our worship, um, in the daily aspects of life. And now I want to show you how Jesus graciously meets us in our want. He graciously meets us when we don't even know that he is what we want. Um, If you can open to John chapter 4, it was read in our uh, scripture time because it is a very long narrative, and I'm not going to be reading it all, Um, but in John chapter 4, we find a woman who, although we don't know her name, she is so well known by the title, Woman at the Well. Um, John is the only gospel writer to mention her story, but he gives 45 verses to this encounter. This detailed encounter, conversation, he gives all these details, and I I believe it's pretty significant. The detail John gives into this conversation reveals so much about Jesus' mission to reach those who feel so lost and needy. And then I feel like this nameless woman's words become almost a reflection of of our own searching souls. I I won't be delving into the entire narrative, but there are two universal aspects in this story that literally jumped off the pages to me while studying. Two pieces to her story that I believe all of us can resonate with so well, they become echoing words into our story. Before I get there, just a brief setup of this encounter. This encounter, it feels like it's so on accident, but we know, and John helps us to know, that this is by no means a by chance accident or by chance encounter. The first thing I see here is that Jesus is graciously intentional. It says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass. We see Jesus deliberately taking a path to have an encounter with this nameless woman. Popular commentators have sometimes insisted that the longer route through the Transjordan was the customary route for Jewish travelers because of their great aversion to Samaritans. It would have been customary to actually not go directly through Samaria, but to go all the way around because their aversion and their the racial segregation was so deep, um, and and yet. When John says he had to, I think it reflects a a compulsion of divine appointment, Um, not merely geography, but a divine appointment that Jesus had with this woman. He had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with him. It's just a beautiful reminder of the lengths that Jesus will go to have an encounter with us. And we don't have to be surprised when when his gracious presence comes to us. In our kitchens, I love that picture that Cynthia gave in her kitchen in the middle of almost begrudging not being able to go up to that mountain. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm here with you in the middle of what you're going through. I'm here. Um, When changing a diaper or gardening or singing in the shower, Jesus loves to meet us in the mundane. Um, John 4 tells us that Jesus, wearied from his journey, sat beside a well just outside of the city, and it was the sixth hour. 
which is noon day. It would, have been, it would have been noon. As he's sitting, the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman, Samaritan woman comes to draw water. John gives us a mini commentary here, and a side note, he helps us to know how culturally taboo this would have been. Samaritans and Jews did not interact, and actually Jews, John says, would have had no dealings with them. And I'm not going to get into the whole racial, se- racial segregation here, but what Jesus is doing in speaking to this woman and this Samaritan woman was unheard of. And no doubt, Jesus was exemplifying for us his wall and barrier-breaking love, the same love we, we are called to emulate. Jesus asked this woman to give him a drink. And her response, is, her response to Jesus is, you're a Jew? And you're asking me for a drink? I get the kind of vibe from this interaction that this chick, she just speaks her mind. And she's kind of, in a sense, fed up. Um, Maybe fed up of being looked down upon. And she kind of got this like, listen, I'm tired and and, and nobody got time for that type of attitude. (laughs) Um, And I don't want us to miss all the aspects of this story that shout of her brokenness and her want. She is no doubt tired and overwhelmed by the constant opinion of others and seeking fulfillment. See, women did not go to the well at noon. Going to a well outside of a city to fetch water in the heat of the sun would not have been ideal. But for a woman like her, it was necessary. She most likely would not have been accepted by the women. This is such a real and and valid possibility Maybe she was tired of the looks and having no woman to befriend her and tired of constant stares and condemnation, and she would have rather dealt with the scorching heat. And that's pretty desperate, but probably pretty, pretty probable. Maybe, maybe her lifestyle caused her to stay up later and not wake up early to accomplish the task of, at a routine time. Whatever it is, I see that this woman is, she has to be tired. You ever just tired of being tired? <laughs> tired of being in your home, tired of just tired. And she hasn't seemed to have her desires met yet, and here she is, in the midst of the rut of her life, Jesus comes to her. I'm certain that one of these descriptions has to resonate with you. For too long, I thought myself so different, so much more righteous than this woman, as her sins are more on display. See, we see Jesus later reveal her life choices later in this chapter. Um, The life choices that would have made her an instant outcast in her society. See, Jesus exposes her life when he says that she's been married five times and she is currently living with a man who she's not married to. The beautiful thing is, I believe Jesus is not condemning her, but he's exposing her longing for love and acceptance exactly what only he could offer her. He's exposing that. He's helping it come to light. And see, her life choices may have been made made because of experiences of pain or hurt or choices made out of searching for fulfillment. Either way, her heart of want is on display. And yet I find myself very much in connection with her, being reminded last week of my own self-righteousness and knowing my own wanting heart. I challenge all of us not to cut short what Jesus wants to do for you and in you by failing to see how sad your condition is and how sad my condition is without him. 
when we truly understand how similar and pitiful our state is without him, the greatness of his grace and salvation feel as wonderful as they truly are. This story is about the satisfaction that Jesus truly offers, and that's why I find myself right here along with her. And here she is, minding her own mundane business at the well to care for the necessary needs of her home, and who comes to her but gracious, intentional Jesus. So why does Jesus go out of his way to have an experience with a broken and needy woman? He knows that he is the only solution to her brokenness and her want. The second truth that jumps out to to me here is that um, knowing Jesus compels us. Knowing Jesus compels us. After he asks for a drink and she responds by saying, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a a woman of Samaria? Jesus' first three words in response to her, it literally penetrate my soul as I was studying this. Verse 10 says, if you knew. If you knew, Jesus tells her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew. To know is to realize or perceive. See, Jesus is saying, you don't even realize. (laughs) Because if you realized, if you knew, your response would be completely different. If you knew the gift of God, that Jesus is a gift, if you knew that what he offers is exactly what you need and that will quench your thirst, then your response would be completely different. Jesus is saying that if you knew, then you would ask him and he would give you living water. See, our knowing should produce action in us. That knowing of who Jesus truly is and what he offers has an effect on us to cause us to ask him to give us what we know only he can give us. Knowing Jesus compels us toward him. These words, I mean, they rock me to my core. If you knew. I mean, how often have you looked back in hindsight and wished that you would have known, because if you would have known, you would have made different choices, different decisions, you would have taken a different path, if you knew. And so often I think, I know Jesus, and yet I lack the progression of what Jesus says my response should be. If I knew, I would stop seeking water from sources that would never provide for me, and I would ask him for that living water daily. Daily, I wouldn't just ask him for once, that living water. I would say, Jesus, I need you every day. If I knew that time with him, seeking him in worship, and having a heart to listen for him and his word would give me more than what a half hour on social media would give me, or how binging on my guilty pleasure, or on any amount of time on Netflix or online shopping or whatever I can insert or you can insert anything, and none of it will offer me the living water Jesus offers. If I knew, then I would ask. Jesus says, if you knew, then you would ask. And I would give you living water. So often, I do not ask Jesus. So often, I live with my own lack of prayer. As if I did not know Jesus and what he offers and the access of power he has available. If I knew, I would ask him. 
Does my life reflect an asking of Jesus type of life? Sometimes I can honestly say it doesn't. And I want to have that knowing that affects my, my heart and my actions. This woman in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Interesting that her response is even more telling of what's in our own unbelieving heart at times. We don't continuously believe, and this is number three, that Jesus is always superior. She asks, are you greater? Isn't that the question we've all, we've all asked? Is Jesus truly greater? She's basically asking if Jesus is truly greater than. Jesus just told her that he can give her living water, and her first impulse is to question him and if he can truly satisfy her. Isn't that crazy? How are you greater? Are you greater than the tangible that I know? She's basically saying, are you really greater, greater than what, what I've known and what I see? I find it crazy here that she tells Jesus, she says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. She tells the one through whom the world was created. Colossians tells us, for by him and through him all things were created. The one who possesses all authority and power, the one who has everything, you have nothing. She may be, listen, she may be out, outspoken and sassy with her words, but I find my own words, which too often are no words, that I'm saying the same thing by my own lack of prayer and dependency and nearness, that I too am saying, Jesus, you, you have nothing. Ugh. How often do we question what Jesus has and what he has access to? We may not literally turn to Jesus like she did and respond with, you don't even have anything to do with, you don't even have anything in your hands to do what you say you can do. You're telling me you have living water and you don't even have a bucket to draw water with. No, we may not say that, but we question him when we wonder if he will truly meet us in our pain, in our depression, in our anxiety, in our weariness, in our loneliness in our want. We say, Jesus, do you even have what you say you have? We are often very practical with God. We know, we feel like we need to know the how, just like she needed to know the, know the how. How will you get this water you're talking about? Some, we, we feel like we need to know the how. There is no how with God. No need to explain his ways or the power he has to make certain that what he says will come to pass will come to pass. We must remember that what he offers us does not necessarily make sense. Living water doesn't make sense. His peace surpassing our understanding, his unending love, it doesn't make sense. How will he give peace to my anxiety? Does that make sense? How can he mend my brokenness and how can he fulfill me in such a way that causes me to stop searching. Does that make sense? How can he meet me in my loneliness? That doesn't make sense. He's not tangible. How often we're just like this woman. Jesus, how are you going to do these things for me? And in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, 
give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And isn't it like us to just want the tangible taken care of and miss out on what we really need? She wanted to have, she wanted to not have to bust her butt anymore and get to the well every day. She's like, yo, Jesus, all right, give me some of that water that you got so that I don't got to do this anymore because I'm tired. So often we want from God the easy fix and not the solution. It's, it's so like us to want the tangible taken care of and to miss the actual answer. Guys, Jesus came all this way just to encounter this unwanted woman in her need and to show her that he truly is all that she longs for. He's exposing her searching and revealing what only he can offer her so that she will know and then ask of him. Nothing is off limits for Jesus to reach us. He will meet us at a well. Where has he been trying to reach you? To remind you of his effectiveness in meeting your needs. Where has he been trying to get your attention? What have you been turning to for that water source? And you need to put it down and truly believe that he is greater than that he is greater than, to truly cease the temporary fix and the tangible and truly ask him to grant you what will cause you to never thirst again. He's calling each of us to know that he actually is superior to anything else we find ourselves grasping onto and to seek him in what he offers us. Because once we know and believe that anything we think is worth holding onto rather than him, we will continue to live in that unsatisfied and wanting state. Jesus told her that the water he gives will become in her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you have yet to trust Jesus for the living water that he offers, may today be the day of salvation for you. He is eager to meet you just as he went out of his way to meet this woman the Lord is meeting you right now. Right now where you are at, the Lord is meeting you. And if you have ceased by your life and actions to believe that Jesus is truly greater than, you, may you humbly repent and come to him with a heart of eagerness and trust. I must humbly repent and say, Jesus, I believe you. One of the last things Jesus tells her in this narrative, Jesus tells her, the Father is seeking in verse 23 for those who will worship him and this is still true today the father is seeking worshipers he's seeking worshipers not perfect individuals not religious rituals not self-righteous individuals but those who will worship him because they see him for who he is and what he graciously offers they see that this world has nothing for them May we be those who worship him in spirit and in truth and find our joy in telling others. All of these women, Anna and Mary and the woman at the well, this nameless woman, respond with telling others. God apparently loves for us to use our voice, for women to use your voice, from Anna the prophetess to Mary the redeemed to a nameless, needy woman who found the one to whom her soul loves and longed for. And he will use your voice if you ask him.
Use your voice for your home. Use your voice for those who do not know him and who are wanting and needing. Use your voice for him. Let me, let me pray as we wrap up and just ask that God would continue to call and draw us to himself, that we would see that he truly is what we long for. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness toward us that never fails, that never ceases. Thank you for these pictures of of women and how you love to encounter women in the midst of what we're going through, to meet us where we're at in our hurt and our want and our daily chores of life and, and how you satisfy us like none other. God, may we come to you for the living water that you offer. And may we be the type of women that can't stop talking about what you've done in our lives. Just like these women just couldn't stop because you're so good. God, will we worship you with our, all of our might, God, and, and just expect of you that when we, we ask that you give because you're a good father. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to trade fixes for solutions. How about you guys? Uh, man, we, we want Jesus, right? He is the greatest thing that we can have. We need him more than anything. Uh, thank you, Cynthia, Debbie, Erica, for your, your faithful exposition of God's word that pointed us to Jesus. And that's what we need uh, this day as we need that in every day. Church family, I pray and hope that you were encouraged as you gathered with us today. I want to give you a quick few reminders before we dismiss um, tomorrow, we're going to be giving away lunches here at the Brook, 300 of them. We could use some more help. If you're able to help, reach out to me or email us at connect at thebrookshy.com as well. I want to encourage you to go to Custom Inc.'s website to buy one of those t-shirts to help our fundraiser knowing that ultimately after we sell a certain amount, um, we'll get a large chunk of cash back to us for our COVID-19 relief fund. Uh, lastly, I want to invite you to join us again next Sunday as we reconvene our Doctrine That Dances series through the Book of Romans. Church, we serve a God who is so good to us, and I pray that today you take some time, uh, whether you're a mom or whether you're not, that you take some time, all of us as a church family, to reflect on God's goodness. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we entrust ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you. God, we ask that you would tear down the idols in our hearts and that we would run to you as the solution and not satis be satisfied with minimal fixes. God, we trust you and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord your God is with you and he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he'll rejoice over you with singing. God bless you, church family. Have a great Mother's Day. Peace.